up a message series that we've been calling Fishing for Life. And the reason we called it that is because that's what Jesus has asked us to do. If you decide to follow him, he wants you to become fishers of people, to work with him and cooperate with him to find people who are lost to God, who are disconnected from him, and help them get back into uh, a friendship with him, uh, a relationship with him. So that's what we've been talking about. If you're here today and you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, you're going to find out how God is working to draw you to himself and what, what uh, he does to help people come. That's what we're all going to find out, but I think it applies to you. As, as you look at this, ask God to, to show you who he is. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Whenever we're going into new territories, we're trying something we haven't done before. We tend to ask, at least I tend to ask, and I think you probably do too, just how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? I've asked this a couple specific times as I've tried to do ministries. I've tried to serve the Lord. First time, when I got serious about being a witness, which is what we're talking about, telling others about Christ and helping them come to know God through him, um, when I got serious about it, I thought, now how is this going to work? How, I, I just could not fathom me telling others the message of Christ and them actually turning around, the lights going on, and them understanding it. Well, that was one of those times. Another time was when Cindy and I came to Diamond Bar to plant the church. Just how is this going to happen? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm like the kind of guy who likes to have something that's going and then operate it. At least I thought I was. I've enjoyed what God's led me to do here. But how is this going to work? How in the world are we going to land in Diamond Bar, California, and meet people and tell them what's going on? You know, like, hey, yeah, come to our church. Really, where is it? Well, it's not yet. I mean, you know, we really do you have a building? No, we don't have a building. We, you know, how in the world is that all going to come together? I wasn't quite sure. I read a book. Before I got here, or while, while we were starting, called The Birth, Care, and Feeding of the Local Church. Really helped me, the perspective in that book. Because it said, the church starter, the people starting the church, are just finding people who have already been intended, whom God has already intended to be a part of the church. You're just out finding people. Now, we need to be faithful to go find the people. But as we're meeting people, we're just finding the ones that God intends to be a part of the church. Oh, God has the major role in the process here. He's the one that's doing it. I remember being intimidated because, you know, I grew up blue-collar family and Diamond Bar tends to be more young executives. And then I'd driven through Diamond Bar several times on the way to college uh, from my hometown, and I don't, the only thing I could see were the big houses on the hill, and I thought, that's Diamond Bar, that's where God's telling me to go start church, how is this going to work, you know, that's intimidating, and I'm not sure these people are going to feel a need for, for, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure they're going to feel a need for what I have to say, they're not going to, are they going to, well anyway, I took my son Thad to, to McDonald's, and I heard people talking, families, other families kind of having conversations and things going on. I listened to how the parents were treating the kids. And as clear as a bell, God said to me, 
you have what they need. And so you need to tell them that's, that's why you're here, because you have what they need. And it's a privilege that we have to be involved in the process of seeing people come to know Christ. I'm always enthused and amazed when God does the work that he does. And I say, how does that happen? And it's not really a question. It's half question, half exclamation mark. (laughs) How does that happen? Because it's amazing. How it happens is God does it. That's how it happens. God does it. God plays the major role in making things happen when he brings someone to himself. Wow, does that help to remember that? Does that help to realize it? One of the things he does is he makes himself known. Romans 1 says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Because of the way things are wired, I mean, we, we have this, we're, we meet in this beautiful room. Don't have a building yet, 23 years later, but we meet in this beautiful room. We look out the windows and we see creation. We see the hills. Uh, in the winter, you can see, when it's clear, you can see the snow-capped mountains. The design of the world infers that there is a God. I mean, who's powerful enough to put this idea together? You, you bring the snow on the mountains, it melts, it rolls down, it becomes water that people can use. It sort of, you know, it's the stuff of life. How, how does that, you see your body, the way we're made, and it's like, wow. Hey, there's some design there. I remember watching an ultrasound. My dad was about 91 or two at the time, and. I watched this ultrasound of his heart, and, you know, they got the thing there, and his heart's beating, and you can see the valves opening and closing, opening and closing, and I thought, that thing's been beating for 91 years. That is an incredible design. That is amazing. You see this, and you you realize there there really is somebody, something beyond, beyond humans that have put this together. And so 85% of the world believes in some kind of God. And we have a native sense that there is a God. It's really hard to say no to that. It's inferred. Secondly, God draws people to himself. In John 6, he says, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God is drawing people to himself. That word in the original language it was written in, which is Greek, means he compels us. He pulls us. There's a strong current that is pulling us toward God. And he, he pulls us along. He doesn't push us. He doesn't force us. But he pulls us toward himself. And if, if you're investigating Christianity, you may have felt that pull. And you may have even fought against it or even wanted to ignore it or tried to block it out of your heart and mind. But it's there. There's this pull. Verse 45 says that through his word, he, he teaches us. God teaches us. And part of the way he draws us is through his word. So as you've come here, if you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, you may have experienced that pull through the word as the Bible begins to make sense to you. There's this pull toward the things of God. 
He, he pulls us through frustrations, disappointments, hurts, blessings, unexpected joys that we didn't expect. Uh, he, he pulls us toward himself through all these things. He's the one. He's the one who's doing this. He's, he's working. Whenever we decide to follow Christ, whenever someone decides to follow Christ, they're really responding to what he's already been doing in their heart. When you decided to follow Christ, if you have, you, you're just responding to the work that God has already been doing in your heart. He had already been doing. And then he convicts and enlightens. That's another thing God does. The gospel, we've been talking about how the gospel is a mystery. It's, it's, it's explained as a mystery in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, um, because it's something that has to be revealed. It's not intuitive. It's not what we can figure out by ourselves. We know there's a God. We know there's something out there, someone out there who had to put this together. But who that is and how to connect to him has to be explained, and that's what the gospel is. So it's a mystery that has to be revealed. Now, that's the most exciting part of reality TV shows, isn't it? The reveal. Sorry, I'm mentioning this, but when my daughter is home, uh, I watch the TV show What Not to Wear. (laughs) Guys, I hope that doesn't, you know, put me in another category or something, but but I I like that show. I I, I like it when she's there. Frankly, I'm never going to land there when she's not. Okay, i got to have her there. But we watch this show, and that's what all reality TV is about. We like the reveal. We, we, like, we, we watch because we got to wait to the end to see what happens. The Bachelorette, who does she pick on Survivor? Who are they going to boot out on, uh, on The Base Loser? Who's you know, lost the least weight? Who do they not like the most so they can get them out of there? You know I mean? They, that's what reality TV is all about, the reveal. And in evangelism, as we share Christ with people, that is exciting when God turns the lights on. And there's an aha, because we can't do that. We cannot reach into the hearts and minds of people and turn the lights on. We need God. We need God to do that, and he does that. We're working with him as he's drawing people to himself and turning the lights on. It's an amazing thing. How does that happen? God does it. Look at what Jesus said about this. Uh, John 16. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Jesus has been talking to them about leaving the earth, going back to the Father. He says, because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. They are grief-stricken. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to do life without Jesus. And he says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The counselor he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God's Spirit. That word counselor literally means a legal assistant who pleads a case. That, that's what counselor means. So he is the one. He is God, the Spirit, who reaches into the hearts and minds that convinces and pleads the case. That's what's going on. He is given to the church. He's given to the disciples. He says, I'm going to send them to you. He's given to the disciples. 
and he works through Christ's body. He doesn't operate in a vacuum. Just like Jesus had a physical body, his spirit has a body, the church, that he works through. And he works, he goes about working to accomplish some things. Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict. He will convict the world of, the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The word translated here, convict, means to present or expose the facts, to convince of the truth. So, therefore, it means to convince of anything and particularly to convince of a crime. That's, that's the idea here. This, this is its meaning here. He will convince and convict the world of sin and of guilt. If, if we don't... if if we don't understand our guilt before God, and we don't natively understand that, this is part of the thing that has to be revealed to us. If we don't understand our guilt before God, if we don't realize it, we don't understand our need for Jesus Christ. Because if I don't know that I'm guilty, why do I need someone to relieve me of my guilt, to pay for my guilt, to pay for my sin? So this is what the Holy Spirit does. He, he comes in to convict and to convince of these things. And for me, I'm relieved. If I'm going to witness, and I'm going to tell others about Christ, I don't have to be the guy that walks in the office with a sign, you are a sinner and you need to change. I don't have to be obnoxious and a jerk. I don't have to be a pompous self-righteous jerk, because I'm not saying that. The Holy Spirit reveals it over time to people as they hear the truth. I, God can say that. I can't. Who am I to say that, really? I, I'm a sinner like everybody else. I've, I'm guilty. I've blown it. I've messed up. And I still do. I'm not a perfect human being, so who am I to say that? Well, I shouldn't, but God, the Holy through the Holy His Spirit does. God the Holy Spirit says it, and it makes sense when he says it. And, and it, we, we don't readily admit to being guilty, but it's an important step in the process of coming to Christ because if we don't admit our guilt, then we don't understand our need. We, we have to have that. Many times we shy away from admitting our guilt because... Uh, we don't like to feel bad about ourselves, especially in our country. You know, we're really locked on to self-esteem, and we try to pump ourselves up, feel good about ourselves. But it's when you admit your guilt that you understand your value before God. God, I have completely blown it. I have rebelled against you. What I deserve is your wrath. I deserve your anger. And yet, you have loved me in Jesus Christ by paying the price for my sin. It's only when you admit your guilt that you understand your value because God loved you and I so much that he paid the price in his, through his son's death on the cross to bring us into a friendship with him. That, that is when you get it. That's how you get it. You have to admit it. So that's why the Holy Spirit is working to convict us. 
Not because he wants to lock us away, but because he wants to free us. He wants to give us freedom, and that's the only path. Confession of guilt is the only path to freedom. And I am so grateful to God that he does that work, and I don't have to try. I don't have to be ugly. I don't have to be obnoxious. He, he does it in a way that is so gentlemanly and right. And he has the right to do it because he is completely holy and perfect and just. And he does it in a way that is convincing. <laughs> I know you've probably felt that, that conviction. It's a crucial step in relating to God rightly. Without it, we are constantly trying to justify ourselves and not depending on him for the justification that he has to offer. Jesus goes on. He says he convicts the world in regard to sin because men don't believe in me. Basic sin problem is rejecting Jesus Christ. He convinces us that he really is who he said he is. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. He doesn't say in regard to unrighteousness. He's not convicting us of our unrighteousness, which he does. But in this point, he's saying of Jesus' righteousness, that he really was who he said he was, and he didn't deserve the treatment he received. And we run to him because his righteousness he gives to us. And then in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. We sang a song, Lord is a Warrior. The idea is he is battling for us against the enemy, the prince of this world, Satan, who stands condemned. He won the victory. D-Day was at the cross. The victory was won on the cross. Now, as we rely on him, we experience more and more freedom from the judgment that, that, he, he, that we deserve. We, we are free from the judgment. We are free from condemnation because Jesus won the victory for us on the cross. And as we live out that freedom, people see it, and they're drawn to God through that. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does through us. It's amazing stuff, really. Coming to faith in Christ is a process. It's not an event. And God is the one who is orchestrating the process from beginning to end as he works in the hearts of people through his spirit to do things that you and I cannot do. But boy, it's fun. It's fun to have a part. God gave us a part. We have a role. We, we can do our part knowing that God is faithful to do his part. He's doing the hard part. He's, he's carrying the major load. Our part is to respond to his call. He has called us. I just listed some things that really are a summary of what we've been talking about. He's asked us to be fishers of men. If you follow him, you respond to that call. He's, he's actually told us that that's what he's going to make us. He empowers us. He motivates us. He changes us. He helps us to make it clear, uh, the message. He gives courage to deal with fear. He builds his church as we work as a team. We looked uh, last week at how Jesus is building his church. It's unstoppable. It's not going to be stopped. We are a group of people that Jesus is putting together, and he is not going to stop. Or the, nothing's going to stop what he is doing, I mean, in, in us. Nothing at all. Not even the gates of hell. We can, we can charge the gates of hell 
and, and we will not be stopped as, as he is building the church through us. I'd like to wrap up this series and this message with a story by looking at a, a, an incident from, uh, from history in the Old Testament, and we can learn a lesson from some lepers. In the Old Testament, 2 Kings 7, uh, 1 through 16, and their story par- parallels ours in some ways. And I'd like to give you some background to the story and then look at the story and draw some parallels. This took place about 850 B.C. Uh, in 950 B.C., the kingdom of Israel split into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had good and bad kings alternately, almost almost. One right after the other, one would be good, one would be bad, a couple would be good, a couple would be bad. I mean, it was, they, they had a mixed run. The northern kingdom, a run of bad kings, almost all bad kings. They didn't last, they didn't last very long compared to the southern kingdom because they, they were just, they had a bad run, bad kings. The capital of the north was Samaria. And uh, what happened in what's going on in the story we're going to read is the king of Aram besieged the city of Samaria. And what that means is the Arameans, the king and his army, they surrounded the city and they, they contained every, the city and everyone in it within the walls of the city. They couldn't come out because the army was out there. They didn't want to battle. They, they didn't have the strength to battle. So the city was under siege. That meant that you can't go in and out. You run out of food, you run out of food. And you can't go get more food. And so what was going on in the city is people were starving. And it says in the, right, in the verses right before the, the passage we're reading that a donkey head was selling for 80 shekels. These people were hungry. Now, this is kind of gross. The Bible is, what I'm going to tell you is kind of gross. The Bible is just, it just puts it out there. This is what was going on. Dove dung was selling for five shekels. Not the dove, dove dung, five shekels. These people were hungry. They were starving to death. And actually, cannibalism started to take place. So I I tell you this, not to gross you out, but to give you a picture of the desperation in the city as this army has it under siege. They can't go get more food, and they're about to the end of their life. That's where we pick up. God speaks to them through a prophet, Elisha, 2 Kings 7, 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, in 24 hours, a sea of flour will sell for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even the Lord should open the floodgates, out of, uh, even if... The Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens. Could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it <clears throat> because of your unbelief. You're, you're not going to get in on it. So this is amazing. The king of Israel is really mad. He's mad at God. He's mad at the prophet. And he, he can't hardly believe that this is going to happen. Could you believe it? A donkey head for 80 shekels and a sea of flour, real food, that you can make real bread from, is going to sell for, for a shekel tomorrow? <laughs> I don't know how that's going to happen. 
basically the people were saying, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. This is all part of the backstory. I want to look at the focus of our story, which is just outside the front gates of the city. Four lepers are out there. Lepers are outcasts because they have the disease of leprosy. They, they can't go into the city to get the food. They don't, they're not free to, to be in there. They're, they're put out of the city to protect everybody else from the disease. And this is what it says about these four guys. Now, there are four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They were in worse shape than everybody else who was eating the stuff I described. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? So here they are. They're about to die. They're thinking through their options. <laughs> they list three options. If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. Option one, ends in death. If we stay here, we will die. Option two, death. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, we will die. So at least option three, it's not that great. You're going to go surrender to the enemy. But there's a chance that we're going to live. And so they talk about it. Seems like a no-brainer to them. They decide to go at dusk. They got up. And went to the camp of the Arameans. Look what God does. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. So God creates this ruckus. It scares the Arabians. They clear out. So the lepers show up. They think, well, we're about to find out. You know, I might get a spirit through the heart. And they're all gone. They're, they're amazed. Put yourself in the place of these guys. Whoa. They're the outcasts who hadn't even had access to the putrid food that the people in the city were eating. And they come upon the camp and they see this going on. In verse 8, it says, The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away the silver, gold, and clothes. Clothes were very valuable because they were handmade. And they went off and hid them. Then they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. So they eat and drink. They're gorging themselves. They go hide the stuff. Then they come back to the next tent. They're eating and drinking. They go hide the stuff. They're back to the next tent. And they're like, this is awesome. I don't, know, I don't know how or why, but this is good stuff. Have you ever seen Survivor at the, you know, when they win a, win a reward challenge? And they're, oh, man, haven't eaten good stuff in a while. I, this is like times a thousand. This is, this is big for these guys. Then all of a sudden, they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. And as they come at dusk, we have got to go tell the rest of the people. This is an urgent matter here. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. This is the lesson for us. We can't just enjoy the good stuff that God gives. We can't get all wrapped up. And what Jesus does for us. But we need to go back and tell. We need to go back and explain. 
we need to let the people around us understand why things are good with us. We easily get wrapped up in our own little world and in our circle, and we don't tell others. In fact, the longer that you walk with the Lord, the more your tendency is to keep it to yourself. But we've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to allow God to work with us to help others come to know him. If we're following Christ, he's going to lead us out there. He is going to be leading us to to tell others about him. He's going to keep getting getting us to move outside of ourselves to share the, the, the message. So here's the rest of the story just for fun. I'd like to let you see what happened. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night, because remember, they showed up at dusk, so it's probably the middle of the night right now. And they come back, they say, okay, we're full. (laughs) This has been great. It's not right what we're doing. We've got to go tell everybody else. And it's the middle of the night. It's early morning, I would imagine. The king gets up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out. And then when, when they come out, we will take them alive and get into the city. So he thinks it's an ambush. He's, he's cranky. He's mad. He's ticked at God. and you know He's really upset. So he thinks it's an ambush. But one of his officers answers, have some men take five of the horses that are left in their city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all those Israelites who are doomed. We're all doomed. So let's take a chance. Let's see what's going on out there. So let us send them to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. The Lord is a warrior, isn't he? (laughs) These guys were running for their lives. Everything was strewn across the road. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a sea of flour sold for a shekel. And two seeds of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. God makes stuff happen. God is the one who does it. He is doing his part to accomplish his purpose in the world. And in your life, in my life, in the people you care about, in their life. He is working to accomplish his purpose. He is the one that is working through us to find men and women who are lost to him. I mentioned coming to Dimebar to plant the church, and Cindy and I moved into what was known as the Daisy Apartments at the time. It's, it's got another name. It's had a few names. But the way that those apartments are designed, they're, they're quads. So there's a, a row of apartments facing in. There's a row over here facing in, a row here facing in, a row here facing in. So you live in a quad. And we showed up in August to plan a church and didn't know it, but there was a guy in our quad who'd been praying for eight years. He'd been telling God, God, I'm not going to go look for a church. 
that if you bring one to me, I'll get involved in that. God is the one that does this stuff. He's the one that works in the hearts of people, drawing them to himself. And we just work with him. Bill was the first guy to turn around from going his own way and decide to follow Christ at Church in the Valley. God, we, God just uses us to find people. He, he uses us. And it's a privilege to be involved in what he's doing. I'd like to look at some steps uh, that you could take as a result of hearing this message. In a few moments, we're going to be receiving our, our offering and on your connection card if you'd like to let us know that you're taking this step. You could just check that step and drop it in the offering sort of as a commitment to doing it. Um, one could be to memorize John 6:44, just to remind you that God's doing this. I don't have to manipulate or control or try to push or pull. or I, I don't have to do that. God's working in the hearts of people. I just need to be faithful to, to do what he's telling me to do, to love and to tell and to help people come to understand him better. Um, I, I will pray daily that God would bring those on my heart into a relationship with him. Maybe there are people on your heart that you'd like to see come to know Christ. Pray daily. Pick, pick just this week, maybe five days this week or three days. Pick a number and say, I'm going to pray daily, three days, five days. Um, and then finally, I'm going to do my part knowing that God is doing his. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and tell. This is not right to keep this to myself. I'm going to start telling others what Jesus has done. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us, the direction that you've given us, and, and the way that you work in our hearts to turn the light on. I, I thank you for your kindness and your mercy, because God, we are guilty, all of us. We stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And yet, you're loving and merciful. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Help us, Father, to take the steps that we need to take. Those who are investigating you, show yourself to them. Make yourself real. Those of us who are following, give us the power and the strength to step out to do our part as we know you're doing yours. Help us to take these steps and bring honor to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.